Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to episode 266 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about the Lakota medicine man, Black Elk. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Aiken. Hey, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. In the 1860s, a Native American child was born named Black Elk. Raised among the Lakota people of the Great Plains, he grew up to become a medicine man. Black Elk had multiple paranormal visions. He participated in the Messianic Native American ghost dance movement, and he took part in famous events like the Battle of the Little Bighorn and the Battle of Wounded Knee. Who was Black Elk? What happened in his life, and what are the hidden truths about him? That's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World. Jimmy, what do we need to say to begin? Well, today we begin a two-part story about a Native American man named Black Elk. In this episode, we will tell you about what was publicly known about him for much of the 20th century. And next week, we'll tell you the secret story of what was deliberately kept from the public by the authors who wrote about him. Also, today's story occurs during a violent period of Native American American history, and we will have some descriptions of what was happening on battlefields during the conflicts between Native Americans and U.S. federal forces. So be aware of that. Okay, so who was Black Elk? He was born in the 1860s, and the exact time of his birth is debated. However, our best evidence indicates that he was born in July of 1866, so just the year after the Civil War ended. He was born on the Little Powder uh, River at a site that is believed to be what is, in na- what is now in Wyoming. Uh, The Native American people he was born to goes by a couple of names. Historically, they've been called the Sioux, but their name for themselves is the Lakota. And that's become common, though you will see both names used. The Lakota contained seven tribes or sub-tribes, and Black Elk was born into one known as the Oglala. So he was an Oglala Lakota. He had some notable relatives. For example, he was second cousin to the famous leader Crazy Horse, who fought at the Battle of Little Bighorn. Various members of his family were also medicine men or traditional healers, including his great-grandfather, his grandfather, his father, and his father's brothers. So being a medicine man was an established tradition in his family. Interestingly, Black Elk's mother, Mary Leggingsdown, had been married for a while to Black Elk's uncle, Good Thunder. This suggests that Black Elk may have been the product of a Leverite marriage, like we read about in the Bible, where a Levere, or brother-in-law in Latin, marries his brother's widow in order to care for her and raise children for his dead brother. Black Elk also had an older brother named Runs in the Center. Is much known about Black Elk's early life? Unfortunately, not a lot due to the lack of written record-keeping at the time. However, we do have stories that were passed down in the family and in the tribe. For example, in his book, Black, uh, Nicholas Black Elk, Michael Steltenkamp writes, Black Elk also was close to his mother's father, keeps his teepee, 
a beloved grandfather who gave him a bow and arrows. Armed this way, he undertook his first hunt and proudly brought home a slain frog. So that was good. The young black elk was learning the skills he needed to have. And as childhood games are meant to teach skills, black elk learned additional skills through play. Stelton Camp continues. Rough play ultimately defined growing up as a Lakota boy. Young boys would play a game that pitted one group against the other. The object was for one group to charge the other on horseback, and the participants would then wrestle each other until one of them fell to the ground. Playing naked one day, Black Elk was thrown from his horse and landed in the center of a cactus. Boys aspired to being a warrior since dying in battle was the greatest thing an Indian could do. As little children, they were given a knife, rope, and bow with arrows. Mastery of their use was the cultural ideal. Despite times of rugged play, Black Elk's childhood had its lighter moments. Pranks also had their place. Black Elk cited one of them when recalling his childhood experience with a certain man, Watanye. Young boys would try to make this man laugh because he had severely chapped lips. They would perform some humorous stunt and he would put a hand on his mouth to prevent hurtful movement. Fishing one day with Watanye, Black Elk threw his spear into the stream, lost his footing, and accompanied the spear into the water. This unplanned plunge made Watanya double over in laughter despite the pain it brought to his lips. From that time on, Watanya would have to hold his mouth when seeing Black Elk. Remembering the incident would instantly make him start to laugh. And Black Elk definitely had a sense of humor, something that will come back into our story later. But life at this time was still rough and could be quite dangerous. Bloody encounters with the Shoshones, Pawnees, and Flatheads were regular occurrences when the holy man was a young boy. An engagement with the Flatheads in 1871 left a special impression on him. He reported that his people killed 66 Flatheads and that these people were pitiful and cried to stop fighting. This being a boyhood memory might account for why it was remembered as a larger-than-life reality. Other Lakota sources said that the number of enemies slain was half of what Black Elk recalled. It also was in childhood that Black Elk began to have mystical experiences. Upon first riding a horse at the age of five, he had a vision that lasted about 20 minutes. The word for vision and dream is the same in Lakota. He said that a kingbird, or flycatcher, told him that two men were approaching and that they were descending from out of a cloud in the north. Each was holding a spear and singing the words, A sacred voice is calling you. They departed in the west, appearing as geese. After this experience, when Black Elk heard another vision voice beckon him, he would disregard it. So much had the early vision frightened him. However, in 1874, when he was about eight years old, Black Elk had an experience that he could not ignore. He became suddenly ill. He collapsed. His body became very swollen, making it sound like this may have been an allergic reaction of some kind and he remained unconscious for 12 days. While he was unconscious, his family had a medicine man treat him, and during the time that Black Elk was unconscious, he had a powerful vision. Based on what he later said, this vision was incredibly complex, and we won't be able to go through all of it here. Among other things, he saw two men from his first vision who said a sacred voice was calling him, and they took him up into the clouds where they showed him a bay horse. The horse said, My life history you shall see. And the really complex vision began. It contained a lot of parabolic imagery involving animals like horses, 
eagles, geese, and dogs. He saw six elderly men or grandfathers. There was one grandfather for each of the four directions, west, north, east, and south. There was one grandfather who represented Wakantanka, or God, and there was one who represented Black Elk himself as an old man. Black Elk was given a cup of water, signifying that he would be a great healer, a bow and arrows, signifying he would be a great warrior, and a hoop, representing his people and signifying that he would be a leader of people. And he saw two intersecting roads in his vision, a red road and a black road. The red road ran north to south. It was sacred and associated with blessings, while the black road ran east to west and was associated with destruction. Here's a reconstruction of part of what he saw. Black Elk told John Nyhart that as a young boy, he fell sick and experienced a great vision. Nyhart described that event in these words. standing on the highest mountain of them all, seeing in a sacred manner the shapes of all things in the spirit as they must live together like one being. The sacred hoop of my people was many hoops that made one circle, and in the center grew one mighty flowering tree to shelter all the children of one mother and one father. And I saw that it was holy. It's a lengthy vision, a lot of imagery of horses and fires and people and so forth. Stated most simply, it appears to be the early rumblings of a vocation of some sort. Throughout his life, Black Elk looked back to this early vision as his mission, healing his people and calling them to holiness within the sacred hoop. And this vision would stay with Black Elk and shape his life in the future. At the end of the vision, Black Elk returned to his family's home and looked down to see himself lying on the ground as a little boy. So this was an out-of-body experience. Michael Steltenkamp states, Whirlwind Chaser, the medicine man who doctored Black Elk, acquired prestige for bringing him back from near death. The medicine man told the boy's parents that their son had a sacred duty to perform and that he could see the power of lightning throughout the boy's body. However, Black Elk knew his vision was what had made him well, and he was sad that his parents were unaware of the profound journey he had taken. Black Elk's father reportedly said that after his son was cured, he was not the boy he used to be. Spending time alone, the contemplative young man did not wish to socialize with family members as he previously had done. He only spoke with his mother's father, Keeps his teepee and behaved more like a man than the child that he was. There were other dramatic events in Black Elk's childhood. One of them occurred two years later, in the summer of 1876, when the Battle of the Little Bighorn took place. A bighorn is a type of sheep, and the Little Bighorn is a river in what is now Montana. The battle was known among the Lakota as the Battle of the Greasy Grass, and it became famous in Anglo society as Custer's last stand. It was the major engagement of the Sioux, Great Sioux War of 1876 between the U.S. Army's 7th Cavalry Regiment and an alliance of Native American tribes, including the Lakota. People have likely heard of Custer's last stand. 
But who was Custer and why was this his last stand? His name was George Armstrong Custer. He had been a major general in the Union Army during the Civil War, and he was famous for his role at the Battle of Gettysburg. But after the war, the temporary ranks that people had were readjusted, and so he was only a lieutenant colonel in 1876. After the Civil War, Custer gained a reputation as an Indian fighter, and because he customarily wore his hair long, he was known as Long Hair by the Lakota, though he'd actually had it cut right before the battle. In prosecuting the Great Sioux War, Custer came across a big Indian camp on the Little Bighorn River. He saw the opportunity to have a big victory, so he decided to attack. Unfortunately for Custer, the battle went disastrously. He and almost half of his men were killed or wounded. On Custer's side, 268 men were killed, whereas the leaders of the Indian forces, including Sitting Bull and Black Elk's cousin Crazy Horse, only had 31 men killed. So 268 versus 31, this was a decisive defeat. And for years, Custer's reputation was harmed, with people saying this was a foolish attack, though there has been something of a reevaluation in recent years, with some historians saying his plan wasn't actually a bad one. But he still lost, including losing his life. You said that Black Elk participated in the Little Bighorn, but he was only 10 years old at that time. He was a little young. At the time, Lakota males were reckoned to have come of age when they were around 12 or 13, but Black Elk did participate, using his bow and arrow to shoot army troops. In his book, Black Elk Speaks, John Nyhart records Black Elk as saying, Soon the soldiers were all crowded into the river, and many Lakotas too, and I was in the water a while. Men and horses were all mixed up and fighting in the water, and it was like hail falling in the river. Then we were out of the river, and people were stripping dead soldiers and putting the clothes on themselves. There was a soldier on the ground, and he was still kicking. A Lakota rode up and said to me, Boy, get off and scalp him. I got off and started to do it. He had short hair and my knife was not very sharp. He ground his teeth. Then I shot him in the forehead and got his scalp. Black Oak later showed the scalp to his mother, who was very pleased. In fact, the battle was going well, and she and the other women were singing at the time and making tremolo. Tremolo, also known as uulation, is a high-pitched rhythmic sound that is used in many cultures around the world. It's often made by women because they can reach really high notes that men usually can't, and it's often used to signify happiness and celebration. It's sometimes used in Christian services, and it's been speculated that the interjection hallelujah in the Psalms in the Bible may be an instruction for the singers to uulate or make tremolo. Here's an example of what it sounds like. So Black Elk's mother and the other women were singing and making tremolo to celebrate how well things were going. Later, Black Elk returned to the battle, and in this passage, he uses the Lakota word washichu, which refers to non-Indians associated with European culture. Gray horses were lying dead there, and some of them were on top of dead washichus, and dead washichus were on top of them. There were not many of our own dead there, because they had been picked up already but many of our men were killed and wounded. There was a soldier who was raising his arms and groaning. I shot an arrow into his forehead, and his arms and legs quivered. 
I saw some Lakotas holding another Lakota up. I went over there, and it was Chasen the Morning's brother, who was called Black Vasichu. He had been shot through the right shoulder downward, and the bullet stopped in his left hip because he was hanging on the side of his horse when he was hit. They were trying to give him some medicine. He was my cousin, and his father and my father were so angry over this that they went and butchered a Vasichu and cut him open. There was a little boy, younger than I was, who asked me to scalp a soldier for him. I did, and he ran to show the scalp to his mother. While we were there, most of the warriors chased the other soldiers back to the hill where they had their pack mules. After a while, I got tired looking around. I could smell nothing but blood, and I got sick of it. So I went back home with some others. I was not sorry at all. I was a happy boy. Those Asichus had come to kill our mothers and fathers and us, and it was our country. After the Little Bighorn, Black Oak's family left the area and fled to Canada, fearing reprisals by the U.S. government. But things were difficult in Canada, and they returned to U.S. territory, eventually ending up in what is known as the Pine Ridge Reservation in what is now South Dakota. Black Oak then came of age, and in 1881, he became a medicine man, like multiple ancestors and relatives. The occasion for this was interesting. Apparently, Black Elk had developed what today would be called an anxiety disorder. And at this point, I should explain another Lakota term. The word is wakan, and it means holy, sacred, or powerful. For example, if you go to some Catholic churches in the Pine Ridge Reservation today, you'll see that they have translated the phrase from the book of Isaiah, holy, 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 into Lakota as wakan, wakan, wakan. You may see it, uh, for example, on altar cloths, just as you might see holy, 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 or santo, santo, santo in English or Spanish in other churches. In any event, Michael Steltenkamp explains, In his mid-teens, Black Elk became increasingly fearful of what the Lakota called thunder beings. These were Wakan powers of the West symbolized as thunder and lightning, horses, dogs, swallows, butterflies, and dragonflies. Restlessness and anxiety about these beings haunted him to such an extent that his parents enlisted the assistance of Black Road, a respected medicine man. Perhaps, they thought, Black Road could cure their son or in some way help him make sense of the anxiety he was experiencing. Although never cited as the source of his fear, the thunder-like sound of guns in battle might have been what had traumatized Black Elk since infancy. His fear finally required attention in 1881 when the family was camped three miles from Fort Keogh on the Tongue River in Montana. Black Road diagnosed the youth's symptoms and suggested performance of the horse dance as a cure. It would be therapeutic, but it would also help the boy fulfill his vision to become a contributing member of Lakota society. The horse dance was really elaborate. Uh, it was a very elaborate ceremony that involved the whole village to a degree. Among the participants were two medicine men, four young women, 12 men on horseback, and Black Elk himself. Everyone had carefully choreographed roles to play. Riders painted black faced west and sang. Riders painted white sang facing the north. Those painted red toward the east and those yellow to the south. Young women then followed and likewise faced the south. At last, Black Elk saw the entire village assembled on horseback to acknowledge and benefit from the sacredness of the occasion. He then mounted his bay horse. And at this point, Black Elk saw a vision in the sky. Facing west, Black Elk said that he saw a cloud that contained a rainbow teepee 
with six grandfathers extending their hands toward him. In the north was a man painted white whose right hand was likewise extended to him. Black Elk prayed that the power he now received through this ritual would be used on behalf of his people. The procession continued and came to a conclusion with the people rejoicing, hail pelting down a short distance from the village and thunder clapping. The universe itself seemed to be in a state of joyous excitement. And the ceremony worked, Stelton Camp explains. Black Road's counsel that the dance should be performed was apparently redemptive. Black Elk was elated as if on a cloud himself. Everyone was pleased with what had taken place, and Black Elk claimed that many of the community's sick were healed. To him, the horses even appeared to be healthier than they were prior to the ceremony. His fear of the thunder beings vanished, and he felt that the animals even seemed to regard him with deepened respect. Lavished with gifts from the community, Black Elk was now recognized as a medicine man. The horse dance ceremony had occurred away from Pine Ridge, so when Black Elk returned home in September of 1881, he performed a new ceremony to establish his credentials as a medicine man to the local community. He needed their recognition in order to practice in the area. And so he performed a special ceremony known as Hanblachia, or Crying for a Vision, a vision quest. He participated in a sweat lodge ritual and then went by himself to a hill to meditate in hopes of receiving a vision. And he reported receiving one, which was not a given. As Stelton Camp explains, Success depended upon the character of the person, so not everyone received a great vision. Black Elk was insistent that performing the rite would not just magically transform a person whose life was floundering in some fashion. And Black Elk did receive a vision. Afterwards, he sought help in interpreting it. Older men awaited them in a sweat house, and they expressed interest in learning what had been revealed to the youth. After telling them what he saw, he received their affirmation in words that made a lasting impression. They said Black Elk was being called to greatness and encouraged him to begin using his gift to help mankind. He had earlier understood his power was to be exercised in a more restricted sense, to his nation only. Now the elders were suggesting a more universal orientation. They told him that very few had ever received the inspiration to reach out to humanity as a whole. The counsel of these men profoundly imparted a sense of mission that was to be an abiding one throughout Black Elk's life. Afterwards, Black Elk began work in Pine Ridge as a medicine man, and one of the ceremonies he participated in is particularly interesting. It was called the Uweepi Ceremony. Such ceremonies were commonly used for beneficial purposes, such as to heal someone, but you also could use them to put a curse on others. And the Uweepi ceremony had some similarities to things that were going on in the Anglo world in spiritualist circles. As we discussed in episode 137 on mediums, the Fox sisters had begun the spiritualist movement in the 1840s, and by the 1880s, there were many mediums practicing in America and Europe. Many were what were known as physical mediums, and they claimed to demonstrate the power of the spirits of the deceased through physical means. They would often perform in the dark because light could hurt the spirits. They would often be tied up, and then the spirits would let them out of their bonds. Strange lights would appear, and eerie spirit voices would speak. This was all very similar to what would happen in a Uweepi ritual. Stelton Camp explains, Good or bad spirits might make their presence known by means of sparkling flashes, water droplets splashed on participants, or animal sounds. Black Elk's ceremony included the voices of women in particular. Specialists in Uvipi, forms of which are found throughout North America, 
conduct their rituals within the completely darkened setting of someone's home and are bound within a quilt wrapped tightly by rope during the ceremony. At the end of a ceremony, the UVP man would be free of his bonds. The spirit helpers were said to be responsible for his release. In the Anglo world, the advent of physical mediums was one of the first things that was studied by early parapsychologists, such as representatives of the British and American Societies for Psychical Research. And they repeatedly exposed many physical mediums as frauds who were using magician's tricks. That was one of the reasons for performing in the dark, to keep the audience from seeing what you were doing. They also used hidden assistants to help them pull off various magical effects. Well, when it came to the Weepy ceremonies, Stelton Camp explains, Not everyone in attendance knew that he or she was actually witnessing or experiencing sleight of hand, ventriloquism, or someone anonymously functioning as the practitioner's assistant. During his UVP ceremony, Black Elk likewise had the help of an assistant whose role in helping orchestrate effects was secret. This accomplice was his lifelong trustworthy friend, Kill's enemy. Black Elk told his daughter that he was adept in his practice of UVP when active as a medicine man. Like other practitioners conducting the ritual, he knew there were few, if any, skeptics in attendance. However, he came to oppose practices that made people think that the sacred could be manipulated. He described the role he played as just like a magician trying to fool people. He was not comfortable taking part in an intentionally deceptive practice that made people believe the supernatural was unexplainably manifesting itself, and so abandoned the practice. He thus gave up doing this kind of thing because he didn't like deceiving people. Interestingly, I took a course in paranthropology a while back, which is the anthropological study of parapsychological phenomena. And what Black Elk was doing is actually quite common. And it isn't always just pure deception. In many cultures, medicine men and shamans will often prime the pump by using tricks at the beginnings of their performances. The idea is that you need to get the participants in a certain state of mind in order to have anything genuinely supernatural happen. So various practitioners will use tricks to convince participants in the ceremony that the paranormal is real and is working here and now. And that gets the shaman and the audience in the right state of mind for genuinely paranormal things to start happening. The same kind of thing is sometimes done in parapsychology labs. The reason is that people have a natural resistance to witnessing paranormal phenomena. They have doubts, and seeing genuinely paranormal things can freak them out. So to get them over that psychological hump, a parapsychological researcher experimenting with, say, psychokinesis or PK might use tricks to convince test subjects that PK is possible. And then, once they're convinced of that and over the shock of seeing PK manifesting in front of them, you know, seeing something move with no obvious cause, then the real experiment can begin and real PK may begin manifesting. Medical doctors in our own culture also use tricks to make patients feel better and trigger their healing abilities. That's what a placebo is, and placebos are a recognized, recognized part of conventional medicine. It's also debated in parapsychological circles whether what placebos are actually doing is getting the patient in the right frame of mind to paranormally or psychically heal himself. However that may be, 
Shamans in many cultures similarly often prime the pump with tricks, paving the way for actual healings or other actual paranormal things to take place. But Black Elk wasn't comfortable using deception in his Uweepi ceremonies, and so he gave it up. After about five years of practicing as a medicine man, Black Elk's life then took a new turn. What happened? In 1886, he signed up with a Western showman named William Frederick Cody, better known by his stage name, Buffalo Bill. Buffalo Bill Cody had founded a Traveling Wild West show three years earlier in 1883, and it was called Buffalo Bill's Wild West. He also included Native Americans in his show, including the famous Hunkpapa Lakota leader Sitting Bull, who had been one of the Indian leaders in the Battle of the Little Bighorn. Buffalo Bill's show traveled all over the United States and went to other countries as well, and Black Elk was one of the people who went with him as part of the show. Growing up in the Great Plains, he had never seen an ocean, and he had heard about the wider world and had not seen it, so he wanted to go and later explained, I wanted to see the great water, the great world, and the ways of the white men. This is why I wanted to go. Interestingly, one of the requirements of working in the show was being baptized in the Episcopalian Church, and Black Elk wanted to go, so he agreed to be baptized. But he doesn't appear to have been very devout, or possibly even very sincere about this, because he later did not identify as a Christian. But in late 1886, he joined the show and started seeing the world. They performed in Omaha, Nebraska, in Chicago, Illinois, and at Madison Square Garden in New York City. Then they sailed across the Atlantic to perform in England. This was a rather tense experience. Uh, Black Elk said he was concerned that the ship would reach the edge of the ocean and fall off. He described the size of the waves that they encountered as being like mountains. And at one point, they ran into a storm, and the crew handed out life jackets at which point many of the Lakota began to sing their death songs. This was a custom among various Native American peoples. Your death song was a song that you sang when you believed you were about to die. And the storm was so scary that many of the Lakota believed that that was just about to happen. But they made it safely to England. And what did he do for the show? Buffalo Bill's Wild West featured a lot of different segments, horseback riding, uh, sharpshooting demonstrations for which Annie Oakley became famous, Indian dances, and reenactments of famous battles like Little Bighorn. Uh, as a performer, Black Elk would participate in various reenactments of scenes from the American West, and he had a reputation as one of the best dancers, so he was often chosen to perform Lakota dances. We even have a photograph of him in his dance costume. In England, he was one of just five Lakotas chosen to dance at a command performance for Queen Victoria, who the Lakota referred to as Grandmother England, and Black Elk got to shake hands with her. The performance went extremely well, and Queen Victoria was so pleased that she asked Buffalo Bill to bring his show and have them perform again at Windsor Castle on June 20th, 1887 which was part of her Golden Jubilee. And so, Black Elk was included in the celebration of her 50th anniversary as queen. Stelton Camp reports, Seeing the queen's jewel-studded crown in shiny dress and the ornate silver and gold harnesses on her horse-drawn carriage, 
Black Elk thought she looked like a fire coming. At least four kings and 20 members of European royal families attended the event, signifying its importance. Black Elk had said that one of the reasons for his trip was to study the ways of white people, and in England, he saw all kinds of white people bowing to Queen Victoria. Well, at the end of the performance, all of the Queen's subjects bowed toward her, but she bowed to the Indians who were there, which they took as a tremendous honor, and they began to sing and make tremolo to honor her back. As happy as that moment was, Black Elk was just about to have an unpleasant encounter with the law. What happened? The next year, 1888, Buffalo Bill's show sailed back to America, and according to Black Elk, he and three friends got lost, and the ship sailed without them. They couldn't really speak English, and wandering around London, they were arrested, because in the autumn of 1888, a very famous series of crimes was occurring in London, a series that we will be talking about in a future episode, because this was when Jack the Ripper was committing his murders. The police thought that these exotic foreigners may have been involved in a crime that was later attributed to Jack the Ripper, so they detained them. Fortunately, they were able to find an interpreter who was able to clarify that they had not been involved in the event, so they were let go. They then joined up with Mexican Joe Shelley's Wild West show and traveled around Europe, so Black Elk got to go to France, Germany, and Italy. He also learned some English in this period, including how to read it, and he got to observe white culture. This is a portion of uh, Black Elk's letter when he was in England in 1888. I was at the Wild West as I lived among these people that are involved in a show, I learned how to talk and write in English. I learned the ways of the white man, that they too can be good. He was really impressed with these people who went to church every Sunday in these big cathedrals. That was one of the things that really caught his eye. And he was impressed with people's devotion like that even saying he hoped one day to go to the Holy Land to see where Jesus died. However, he didn't make it that far. In 1889, Buffalo Bill's show arrived in Paris, and Black Elk obtained a ticket back to the United States, which Buffalo Bill paid for. Stelton Camp explains, Black Elk's departure from Europe came about through a peculiar experience that took place one morning when he sat down for breakfast. He was all slicked up, that is, clean and well-dressed, when he suddenly fell off his chair unconscious. A doctor pronounced him dead, so the family he was staying with ordered a casket, but then Black Elk awakened. While he was seemingly dead to his hosts, Black Elk was alive within an entirely different world of experience. He said that he felt as if he were on a cloud that carried him across the ocean until it hovered above his mother's teepee. From that high position, he saw relatives mourning his death, this is when he snapped back into consciousness. So he had a clairvoyant, out-of-body experience, and seeing his family mourning his death, he decided to return home. And... Arriving home in 1889, he found his mother's teepee pitched just as it had been in his dream. 
the people who greeted him were also the ones he saw from on top of his cloud. Black Elk regarded this experience as extraordinary, but his dreaming of home, perhaps in delirium, seems as unremarkable as his home appearing just as he left it. Nonetheless, he and others consider the dream a walk-on, or sacred visionary experience. After his return, Black Elk worked as a store clerk. And at this point, let's take a moment to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including Skipper J, Colin F, Sean R, Peter M, and Cherry B. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. And you can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you by Fairvento Law PLLC, now assisting clients with expungements and set-asides of Michigan convictions. To learn more, call 231-202-3321 or go to fearventolaw.com, F-I-O-R-V-E-N-T-O-Law.com. And by Deliver Contacts, offering honest pricing and reliable service for all your contact lens needs. See the difference at delivercontacts.com. So, Jimmy, at this point, what happened when Black Elk got back to the Pine Ridge Reservation? Unfortunately, things were going really badly in Pine Ridge when he arrived home, and the next year they would become even worse. In his book, Lame Deer, Seeker of Visions, Lakota medicine man John Fire Lame Deer explains what it was like in this period. Many Indians felt that great misfortune was upon them. They had been put on the reservation to farm. They didn't know how, but that didn't matter. They had years of drought. The wind blew their land away in clouds of dust. Even the white farmers who had better land and the know-how were having a hard time. The Indians had been given some cattle for the land taken from them, and they were supposed to breed them. But as the crops failed and the government-issued food was late, the Indians ate the cattle. After that, they starved. They had measles, whooping cough, lung trouble. It wouldn't have killed strong people, but it killed those who were weak from hunger. The Indians said we might just as well lie down and die. They were hoping that some help would come before it was too late. Amid this atmosphere of despair, a new movement was brewing. It had begun around 20 years earlier in 1869 in the brand new state of Nevada, which was home to a group of Native Americans known as the Paiute. One of the Paiute was a medicine man named Hawthorne Wadziwop, and in 1869 he had a vision in which he journeyed to the land of the dead. There he encountered the souls of the recently deceased, and he got them to promise to come back to their loved ones, perhaps in three to four years. Afterwards, he announced his vision and was supported in his message by a man named Tavibo, who was a weather doctor, meaning he was a shaman with power over the weather. Together, they preached that people should perform a special dance. This dance is a kind of dance known as a circle dance, which, as the name suggests, is a dance in which people form a circle. In my time calling dances, I've led many circle dances of different types, and they were also used among various groups of Native Americans, both as part of social dancing or dancing just for fun, which is the kind I do, and also as part of ritual dancing. The circle dance that Wadzuwab and Tavibo taught was a ritual dance, and it was believed that it would help the return of the ghosts of the deceased back to their loved ones. One of the people who became involved in the movement was Tavibo's son, whose name was Wovoka, 
a name that means cutter or woodcutter, though among whites he used the name Jack Wilson. Wovoka was in training to be a weather doctor just like his father, and then he received a vision. On January 1st, 1889, there was a total solar eclipse. Haven't we mentioned that eclipse before on the show? Yes, we actually mentioned this eclipse way back in episode 20 on the lost planet Vulcan, which was thought to exist between Mercury and the Sun because of the way Mercury was moving around the Sun. They reasoned that there must be another planet between Mercury and the Sun that was tugging on Mercury. Some astronomers said that they had sighted Vulcan, and now they were using eclipses to look for it, since you can see objects close to the sun when our sister planet, the moon, is blocking most of the sun's light. But nobody could find Vulcan during the 1889 eclipse, among others, which eventually helped convince astronomers that Vulcan didn't exist. Mercury's behavior was eventually explained by Albert Einstein's general theory of relativity in 1915, and the theory of relativity itself was verified by observing another eclipse in 1919. All that lay in the future, though, and during the eclipse of New Year's Day in 1889, Wovoka had a vision. Since their causes frequently were not understood, eclipses have been regarded as frightening supernatural experiences in cultures all over the world. I mean, when the sun goes dark, it looks like the sun has died, and that can't be good. Seeing an eclipse is the kind of experience that can profoundly move you and it could trigger a paranormal experience, which is what happened to Wovoka or Jack Wilson. Wikipedia explains, He said he stood before God in heaven and had seen many of his ancestors engaged in their favorite pastimes, and that God showed Wilson a beautiful land filled with wild game and instructed him to return home to tell his people that they must love each other and not fight. He also stated that Jesus was being reincarnated on earth in 1892 that the people must work, not steal or lie, and they must not engage in the old practices of war or the traditional self-mutilation practices connected with mourning the dead. He said that if his people abided by these rules, they would be united with their friends and family in the other world, and in God's presence there would be no sickness, disease, or old age. Anthropologist James Mooney writes that Wilson was given the ghost dance and commanded to take it back to his people. He preached that if the five-day dance was performed in the proper intervals, the performers would secure their happiness and hasten the reunion of the living and deceased. Wilson said that the Creator gave him powers over the weather, and that he would be the deputy in charge of affairs in the western United States, leaving current President Benjamin Harrison as God's deputy of the East. Jack claims that he was then told to return home and preach God's message. Jack Wilson claimed to have left the presence of God, convinced that if every Indian in the West danced the new dance to hasten the event, all evil in the world would be swept away, leaving a renewed earth filled with food, love, and faith. Quickly accepted by his Peyote brethren, the new religion was termed Dance in a Circle. Because the first European contact with the practice came by way of the Lakota, their expression Spirit Dance was adopted as a descriptive title for all such practices. This was subsequently translated as Ghost Dance. Now, Wovoka was regarded as a prophet, but he was living with the Paiute over in Nevada. Other Native American peoples were curious about the ghost dance and the message of hope that it offered, so 
they sent rep representatives to investigate it, and that included the Lakota. Lame Deer states, It seemed to be the message, the help, the people had been praying for. One tribe after another took up the dance. When the Sioux heard about it, they sent four trustworthy men to the south to talk to this Peyute holy man. They were Good Thunder, Cloud Horse, Yellow Knife, and Short Bull. They had a hard, long time traveling. Most of the land was already occupied by the whites. They had roads, fences, and railroad tracks to cross. Indians were not allowed off the reservations without a special permit. They had to travel by night and hide in the daytime. When these four men came back, they said, It's all true, what you have been told about this new belief. One said, I fell down as dead. I was dead. I found myself on this new earth, and I saw my relatives there who died last year. I saw him as I see you now, and I saw his wife, who was killed by white soldiers a long time ago. They were living in a big teepee, and they gave me some meat. I have saved it, this meat from another world. Here it is. Another man said, this new religion must be good, because now when we meet men who used to be our enemies, crows, Assiniboines, Pawnees, that ghost dance has made us into friends and brothers. Now we are just one big tribe, Indians. And so the message of the ghost dance began to spread among many Native American peoples, particularly in the western part of the United States. As you heard, it reached the Lakota in South Dakota, and it's their name for it that was translated as ghost dance, because one of its purposes was to help reunite the living with the spirits or ghosts of their lost loved ones. But the details of the ghost dance and what it was about varied as its message was retold, so it didn't mean exactly the same thing to everyone. According to Lame Deer, here is how the Lakota, or Sioux, understood it. Some of the Sioux were traveling some more to get the full story on that dance. Men like Short Bull, who had already visited the Paiute Prophet, and Kicking Bear, a fierce, scowling warrior from Cheyenne River. These two became leaders of the ghost dance. They told the people that they could dance a new world into being. There would be landslides, earthquakes, and big winds. Hills would pile up on each other. The earth would roll up like a carpet with all the white man's ugly things. The stinking new animals, sheeps and pigs. The fences, the telegraph poles, the mines and factories. Underneath would be the wonderful old new world as it had been before the white fat takers came. They said the spirits of the dead will live again on this earth. The ghost dance will bring back our dead relations. It will bring back the buffalo. Everything will be good and pure again. There will be no killing. The white men will be rolled up, disappear, go back to their own continent. There might be a few good ones. One could give them an eagle feather to stick in their hair. Then they could come too, be a part of the new world, and live like Indians. Only a very few could make it. The earth will shake and a big storm will come up. Then we'll be reborn. Men and women will take their clothes off at that time and not be ashamed, coming again from the womb of Grandmother Earth. So many Lakota interpreted the ghost dance as a doorway to a comparative Garden of Eden in which all the things their people had been made to suffer would be undone. And it's easy to understand why that would be attractive. One of the things that many ghost dancers expected was the arrival of a savior, or Wanakia, in Lakota. As a result, the ghost dance movement is often classified as a messianic movement. Wovoka had said that Jesus would be reincarnated in 1892, though others thought that Wovoka himself would be the Wanakia, or savior. 
What did Black Elk make of the ghost dance movement? He was intrigued by it. Uh, Black Elk was as sensitive as anybody to the horrible situation his people were in, and he ended up becoming a supporter of the ghost dance movement. Michael Steltenkamp describes an account of a ghost dance recorded by Father John Yutz at Pine Ridge. Jutz wrote, The leader of the dance loudly spoke several words that were repeated by everyone. Thereupon, all of the dancers turned their faces southward, raised both of their hands, and sang at the top of their voices. This singing lasted for about two or three minutes. Then they all turned to face the holy tree and firmly interlocked their hands. Jutz then reported that everyone stood calmly and closely together. They gradually started moving around in a circle en masse, with their eyes closed or staring at the ground. The pace quickened as everyone sang to a dance that included much hand and foot movement. After about 20 minutes, people began to stagger, moan, and roll their eyes. Other dancers tried to support them, but to no avail. Falling within or outside the circle, people flailed their arms, rolled in the dust, and scraped the ground, seizure-like, until completely spent. Judd said that it took about 30 minutes for these dancers to recover from what appeared to be an unconscious state. This continued for about 90 minutes until everyone paused for rest, only to resume the dance in another two hours. According to Jutz, the dancer's unconscious condition was the state of dying, and the medicine man told them in, that in this state they would see the Messiah and their deceased parents and friends, and that those who died in this way would be especially sanctified. Black Oak had special reason to want to see his departed loved ones because he was in mourning. His father had died in the summer of 1889, so he had just suffered the first loss of a parent which can be a very traumatic event since your parents have always been with you. They're like the two pillars of your emotional and social universe. And suddenly when one of them is gone and this has never happened to you before, it can be really disorienting. So in addition to wanting relief from the bad conditions of the time, Black Oak would have special reason to want to do the dance to be reunited with his father in a vision. Didn't the ghost dancers have a special kind of garment they would wear? Yes, uh, these were known as ghost shirts. Uh, these were specially decorated shirts that were thought to have protective powers. Specifically, it was claimed that they would protect you from bullets. The origin of the ghost shirt was a vision that had been received by a Lakota woman who was married to a man named Return from Scout. The ghost dance movement had some contact with the Latter-day Saint or Mormon movement, which had moved west under Brigham Young, and it's been speculated that the ghost shirt may have been inspired by what's known as the Mormon temple garment, which are sometimes held to protect one from evil in the world. It's possible that the Mormon garment did indirectly inspire the ghost shirt, but its direct inspiration was the vision of Mrs. Return from Scout. Incidentally, while we're on the subject of the Mormon temple garment, I want to issue a caution. You sometimes hear non-Mormons mocking these garments as magic underwear, but don't do that. We have records in the Bible of people wearing devotional undergarments. In 2 Kings 6, the king of Israel learns that the situation is so desperate in Samaria that people have resorted to cannibalism within their own families. And he's so shocked that he rips his clothes, revealing in the sight of the people that he has secretly been wearing sackcloth as an undergarment. 
Sackcloth is a very rough fabric. It isn't comfortable to wear, so it was a symbol of mourning and penance. So the king had been devotionally doing penance by wearing it as an undergarment. Further, you can wear a garment as a kind of enacted prayer, asking God to protect you, and Catholics do that, for example, when they wear devotional scapulars, which are often worn, including under one's clothes, asking God to protect you. So, don't make fun of Mormons for having devotional garments that they wear under their clothes asking God to protect them. Devotional undergarments have precedence in the Bible, and Catholics often wear devotional scapulars either over or under their garments asking God for protection. In any event, ghost shirts were worn as outer garments, and they were believed to have powerful protective abilities, including the ability to protect you from bullets. Did Black Elk wear one? For a time, he did. He also designed them for others using symbols he had seen in a vision. When he performed the ghost dance, did he receive a vision like the others reported? He did receive a vision, and it had similarities to and differences from those seen by others. In his vision, Black Elk saw the tree in bloom that he had seen way back in his first major vision when he was eight years old, the vision that foretold the future course of his life but he also saw something else. Once more I saw the sacred tree all full of leaves and blooming. Against the tree was a man. I looked hard at him and could not tell what people he came from. He was not Washichu. And he was not Indian. While I was staring hard at him, his body began to change and became very beautiful with all colors of light. And around him, there was light. He spoke like singing. All earthly beings and growing things belong to me. Your father, the great spirit, has said this. And you too must say this. So, Black Elk saw a man who didn't seem to belong to any of the ethnic groups that he was familiar with. He wasn't white and he wasn't Indian. The man said that everything, all earthly beings and growing things, belonged to him. He said that God had said this and that Black Elk himself must also say this. As he stood against the tree, the man's body was transfigured with many colors and Black Elk also saw wounds in his palms. It's thus natural to understand this figure as the Wanakia, or Savior, that the ghost dance movement said was coming. And the imagery here, the man against a tree with wounds in his palms, suggests the Christian influence that had also inspired Wovoka and his prophecy of Jesus' return. In fact, The statement that all earthly and growing things belong to this man and that God had said so sounds a lot like Matthew 28, 18, where Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, meaning given to him by God. Unfortunately for its adherents, the ghost dance movement came to a disastrous end almost immediately after this. What happened? Freedom of religion is explicitly protected by the very first amendment of the U.S. Constitution. Just for reference, here's what it says. Amendment 1. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. 
or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press, or the right of the people peaceably to assemble, and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. The statement that Congress shall make no law respecting the free exercise of religion means that the federal government can't prohibit the practice of a religion. On its face, this would apply to the ghost dance movement as much as to any other. But that's not how the authorities viewed it at the time, and they banned ghost dancing. This caused a cascade of problems. The famed Lakota leader Sitting Bull had returned to the to the Dakotas after he had stopped touring with Buffalo Bill's Wild West show. He lived at, on the Standing Rock Indian Reservation, which straddles the borders of North and South Dakota. Although we don't have records of him participating in the ghost dance, he was tolerant of the movement, and he allowed a group of ghost dancers in Standing Rock. Anglo authorities thus viewed him as an instigator of the movement. Local whites were getting very nervous about the ghost dance movement, with religious ceremonies being performed that were expected to result in the removal of all or almost all white people from the area, perhaps violently, even though the ghost dance movement had pacifist ideals and expected the removal of the white people to be done by God, white people were afraid that the messianic ghost dance movement would turn violent and a violent revolt would start. So the local Indian agent, a man named James McLaughlin, sent to have Sitting Bull arrested. The man in charge of the arresting party was Lieutenant Henry Bullhead, and he was of Native American descent himself, as were other arresting officers. Very early on the morning of Monday, December 15, 1890, Bullhead and the others showed up at Sitting Bull's house on the Standing Rock Reservation and told him he was under arrest. Unfortunately, as Sitting Bull stalled for time, a dispute arose. A local man named Catch the Bear shot Lieutenant Bullhead, and Lieutenant Bullhead's weapon then discharged, hitting Sitting Bull in the chest. Another policeman, Red Tomahawk, then shot Sitting Bull in the head. Sitting Bull's wounds were fatal, and he died a little after noon. A firefight erupted, and multiple people on both sides perished, including Lieutenant Bullhead. What was the effect of Sitting Bull's death on the community? It was immediate and dramatic. Another Lakota leader was named Spotted Elk, though he's also known as Bigfoot. And this being Mysterious World, we're going to call him Bigfoot. So he was an enthusiastic supporter of the ghost dance movement. And once Sitting Bull was killed, his followers then fled to Chief Bigfoot for refuge. Fearing what the federal authorities would do, Bigfoot decided to get them out of the Standing Rock Reservation and he arranged with Chief Red Cloud of the Pine Ridge Reservation to take them there. On the way there, Bigfoot became sick with pneumonia, this being the dead of winter. Bigfoot's party was intercepted by Major Samuel Whitside of the U.S. Army's 7th Cavalry on the way to Pine Ridge. Michael Steltenkamp explains, Bigfoot was a tired and sickly leader who agreed to have his people be escorted to Pine Ridge when stopped by Major Samuel M. Whitside near Wounded Knee Creek on Sunday, December 28, 1890. Whitside supplied him with a private hospital tent and gave tents to others in need. Artillery was placed on what eventually became a cemetery hill that overlooked the camp. Indians and cavalry spent the night in close proximity to one another, and soldiers were pleased that Bigfoot's surrender occurred without incident. 
James S.A., a local trader, provided a small amount of liquor to officers, not the enlisted men, and the soldier camp was in bed early. Indians reported that they were restless and afraid during the night. Shortly after 8 a.m. on Monday, December 29th, Colonel James W. Forsyth took charge, and he asked the Lakota men to separate from the women and children. In what was later evaluated as a tactical blunder, his troops intermingled with Indians at the site since no hostility was expected. Forsyth told Bigfoot to have his people turn over their arms, but this request garnered only a few old pieces. The number of weapons varies in accounts. When told that his people were not cooperating, Bigfoot insisted that they had surrendered their firearms. Forsyth then ordered soldiers to conduct a search and seizure operation. Some of Bigfoot's people were cooperative and some were not. At one point, diehard dancers resisted and raised their 12-shot Winchesters that had been hidden under blankets they carried. Did the infirm Bigfoot know that some arms were not surrendered? Was he lying to Forsyth, who knew some dancers had repeating rifles? These are unanswerable questions. Once the dancers brandished their Winchester rifles, an incident occurred which has been interpreted in different ways. A medicine man named Yellowbird began to sing, blow a whistle, and chant. According to an eyewitness who spoke the language, he chanted this. Do not be afraid. Let your hearts be strong to meet what is before you. There are lots of soldiers and they have lots of bullets, but the prairie is large and the bullets will not go toward you, but over the large prairies. As you saw me throw up the dust and it floated away, so will the bullets float harmlessly away over the prairie. At least one scholar has interpreted this chant as meant to peacefully reassure the people that they would be okay, but the eyewitness interpreted it as winding up the ghost dancers and calling them to battle, especially in light of the fact that many were wearing ghost shirts that were expected to protect them from bullets. Stelton Camp writes, Who fired the first volley will likely never be resolved. Most reports say that a group of warriors drew rifles from under their blankets and fired at the troops in front of them. According to some Lakota survivors, it was the army that immediately sent a volley at Indians across from them when the first shot was fired. The ensuing chaos saw men, women, and children flee, fall dead, or suffer serious wounds. Smoke from gunfire quickly filled the field, and survivors on both sides said that it was difficult to see anything in the confusion. This event took place at Wounded Knee Creek, and so it's known as the Battle of Wounded Knee or the Wounded Knee Massacre. It was the first and largest encounter of what became known as the Ghost Dance War, also known among white settlers as the Messiah War because of the prophesied Ghost Dance Messiah. As a result of the Battle of Wounded Knee, 90 Lakota were killed and four were wounded. Proportionally, this was an astonishingly large number of casualties, since there were only 120 Lakota there, so there was a 75% fatality rate among the Lakota. The 7th Cavalry had a much larger force of almost 500 men, and of these, 31 died and 33 were wounded, meaning they only had a 6% fatality rate. These numbers, however, were just among the combatants. There was also a Lakota village at hand, and the cavalry was using Hotchkiss guns, which were a type of howitzer between a cannon and a mortar. Between the Hotchkiss guns and the rifles the people on both sides were using, the village was torn up, and it contained many women and children. As you'll remember, they had been separated from the men, 
Another 200 civilians were killed, and 46 more were wounded. What was Black Elk's role at the Battle of Wounded Knee? He wasn't there when hostilities broke out, but he heard the noise and came to investigate. In his book, Black Elk Speaks, John Neihart recorded Black Elk as giving an account of what happened, but there's reason to question it. Michael Steltenkamp summarizes, Black Elk told Neihart that he charged soldiers and that their bullets bounced off him. He also claimed that his power made the soldiers run from him in slow motion. The stenographic record of this experience portrays Black Elk depicting himself as an inspired warrior who made a frightened enemy flee his unarmed attack. He carried only a bow. He said that supernatural protection accompanied him. But the mythical quality of his account raises suspicion as to its factual content. Stelton Camp also speculates that Neihardt's account may not be accurate. He notes that no other accounts verify what Neihardt reports Black Elk is saying, and he speculates that Neihardt's account may be an embellished composite stitched together from different sources. Stelton Camp also writes, Whatever his role on the field of battle, Black Elk saw the carnage and did all he could to remove people to safety. He returned to Pine Ridge at night and found his mother and others fearing for their lives. The next day, he went with a friend, E. Crow, to Holy Rosary Mission. Located four miles north of the town of Pine Ridge and built by the Jesuits in 1888, while Black Elk was in Europe, Holy Rosary was also known as the Drexel Mission or Red Cloud Mission. In the days after Wounded Knee, some Cheyenne immigrants wanted to burn the mission but were prevented from doing so through the intervention of Red Cloud and others. Most Lakota considered the mission home to Jesuits, or Black Robes, whom they believed to be trustworthy mediators. Interpreter Philip Wells said that the Lakota agreed that the mission would be treated as sacred and that all that was therein would receive protection and be exempt from damage. And the mission will come back into our story, so remember it. Among the participants in the Ghost Dance War were troops under the command of Major Guy Werner Henry. These were soldiers of African-American descent, and they were known as Buffalo Soldiers. Interestingly, since they were not Indians, they were referred to by Black Elk and other Native Americans as what's translated Black White Men, though the Lakota language term Wasichu does not literally mean white. It's not a color term. It literally means takes the fat or fat taker. And it's a generic term for non-Indian. So Black Wasichu is not as paradoxical as it might sound. It really just means Black non-Indian. But it often gets translated paradoxically as Black White Man. In any event, the Buffalo Soldiers belonged to the U.S. Army's 9th Cavalry, and they helped protect the 7th Cavalry that had been involved in the Battle of Wounded Knee. What was going on with Black Elk at this time? There was a skirmish near Holy Rosary Mission on Tuesday, December 30th. It's known as the Drexel Mission Fight, or the Battle of the Mission. They fled here. The last battle between the U.S. government and the natives really was here. It's called the Battle of the Mission. They fled here because uh, they felt the Jesuits could intercede, keep the army from coming here to do what they'd done at the wounded knee. There are even some bullet holes in this old building from that battle. At this time, Black Elk was rather unnerved. You'll recall that he had a previous vision saying that he would be a great warrior. But as Steltenkamp reports, 
Black Elk was at this clash by the mission and recalled not trusting his vision. He thought he would have remained bulletproof had he kept charging the soldiers with his hands up and imitating the sound of geese traveling north in the spring. Their sound was one of triumph since it announced that winter's challenges had been overcome. In not making this sound, Black Elk said that his fear and doubt caused him to receive a bullet wound in the abdomen. When this occurred, a friend by the name of Protector convinced him to withdraw and get medical treatment. Taking refuge with others in the stronghold, Black Elk recovered from his wound with the help of Old Hollowhorn, a bear medicine man or specialist adept in treating wounds and fractures. On Saturday, January 3, 1891, Black Elk captured five horses in a skirmish, later giving a couple to two men who were on foot. The next day, he wanted to kill soldiers, but was restrained from doing so by his three companions, Kill's Enemy, Poor Buffalo, and Braveheart. Nyhart reported this restraint Black Elk exercised, but an in-law of Black Elk's later claimed that the holy man admitted to shooting a soldier during this period. Black Elk reportedly wanted to continue fighting, but Chief Red Cloud came from Pine Ridge, accompanied by another chief with the awesome name, Young Man Afraid of His Horses, though some argue it should be translated, They Fear Even His Horses. And Red Cloud and Young Man Afraid of His Horses were able to arrange a cessation of hostilities. They got the leaders of the Ghost Dancers to meet with General Nelson Miles on Wednesday, January 14th. A ceasefire was arranged, and so the Ghost Dance War was brought to a close. However, even though Young Man Afraid of His Horses had served as a peace envoy that stopped the war and the killing, not everyone was happy with him. So some of the Ghost Dancers later burned down his house and stole some of his livestock, as you do. Yes, you do. So what happened to Black Elk in later life? He remained on the Pine Ridge Reservation in 1930 and 1931. He was visited by an author named John Nyhart. Black Elk still couldn't speak very much English, and so Nyhart used translators to interview him, including Black Elk's own son, Ben. He wanted to learn about the ghost dance movement, and he asked Black Elk about his life down to the Battle of Wounded Knee. These interviews became the basis of the book Black Elk Speaks, which came out in 1932 when Black Elk was about 66 years old. Unexpectedly, the book became astonishingly popular. It was a bestseller and became internationally influential. It also launched a huge interest in Black Elk as a figure and spawned what is today a massive literature on Black Elk. Black Elk himself passed on to his reward in August of 1950. And one of the most prominent books in the Black Oak literature was published in 1953. It's also based on a set of interviews with him. In 1947, the anthropologist Joseph Eaps Brown interviewed him about Lakota religious ceremonies. The resulting book was called The Sacred Pipe, Black Elk's Account of the Seven Rites of the Oglala Sioux. The Lakota actually have more than seven rites, uh, but the book focuses on seven of them, starting with the ceremonial pipe ritual, as well as the sweat lodge purification, the vision quest, the sun dance, and others. And the sacred pipe also became very famous. It and Black Elk Speaks were particularly popular in the late 1960s and early 1970s when they were embraced by the counterculture movement. New Agers were interested, ecologists were interested, activists were interested, and there was a new romanticism about Native Americans. 
I remember a famous TV campaign at the time that combined some of these elements, right? Yes, I remember very well a public service announcement that ran on TV all the time in the early 1970s. It was sponsored by a community improvement organization called Keep America Beautiful, and it focused on the issue of pollution. The commercial featured the actor Iron Eyes Cody playing a Native American. Cody claimed to be of Native American ancestry, but he was really an Italian. Uh, in the commercial, the or at least an Italian-American, in the commercial, the character he plays witnesses people polluting the environment, and at the end, Cody turns towards the camera and sheds a tear. So he became known as the Crying Indian, and actor William Conrad dramatically said, Some people have a deep, abiding respect for the natural beauty that was once this country. And some people don't. People start pollution. People can stop it. So here, the image of the Native American was being used as a symbol of a purer time when people respected natural beauty and didn't pollute. Though Native Americans also had garbage, like all humans do, as archaeologists recognize. In fact, garbage dumps are very prominent sources of archaeological information. And the popularity of Black Elk through the books, Black Elk Speaks and The Sacred Pipe, helped foster the late 1960s, early 1970s Native American romanticism, since the books portrayed him as a wise and noble Lakota holy man, a traditionalist who had fought valiantly for the old ways, only for them to be crushed by Christian white civilization. So does that end our story about Black Elk? No, not at all, because authors Nyhart and Brown deliberately distorted the image of Black Elk. Their books are selective accounts that intentionally exclude truths about Black Elk. These truths give a very different picture of the man and what he believed. So next week, we'll be telling you the facts about Black Elk that were hidden from the public. Excellent. And until then, Jimmy, what further resources can we offer to the listeners and viewers on Black Elk? We'll have links to Michael Steltenkamp's book, Nicholas Black Elk, Medicine Man, Missionary, Mystic. Also, his book, Black Elk, Holy Man of the Oglala. Clyde Holler's book, The Black Elk Reader. John Nyhart's book, Black Elk Speaks. Joseph Epes Brown's book, The Sacred Pipe. Information about Black Elk from Wikipedia. Also, information on the Death Song Custom, the Ghost Dance, Wovoka, uh, Ghost Dance, the Ghost Dance War itself information about the book, Black Elk Speaks, and also information about good old Iron Eyes Cody. Awesome. So that's it from us for this time. We would love to hear your theories about the Lakota's medicine man, Black Elk. You can let us know what you think by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Facebook page, sending an email to feedback at mysterious.fm, sending a tweet to at mys underscore world, visiting the StarQuest Discord community at sqpn.com slash discord, or calling our mysterious feedback line 619-738-4515. That's 619-738-4515. And I want to say a special word of thanks to Oasis Studio 7 for the video and animation work they did on this episode. You can check out the work they did by going to my YouTube channel, 
youtube.com slash Jimmy Aiken. The video really adds a lot to the audio version of the show, so do check it out. And while you're there, be sure and hit the like button. And also, I'd really appreciate it if you'd subscribe. Uh, We're trying to get my channel up to 40,000 subscribers, and we're almost there. We're getting close. So I would, I would really, I would really thank you for uh, subscribing and hitting the bell notification so that you always get notified whenever I have a new Mysterious World video or when I release one of the other videos I also do. So, Jimmy, what's our next episode going to be about? Next week, we're going to pull back the curtain and tell you what the authors who wrote about Black Elk in the 1930s and 1950s deliberately suppressed. And we're going to expose an entirely different side of his life. Very good. All right, folks, be sure to follow Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, your favorite podcast app, or at Jimmy's YouTube channel, where you should hit the bell to get notifications. You can find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion on our show notes at mysterious.fm slash 266. And remember, to help us continue to produce the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Yakin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part by Rosary Army, featuring award-winning Catholic podcasts, rosary resources, videos, and the School of Mary online community, prayer, and learning platform. Learn how to make them, pray them, and give them away while growing in your faith at rosaryarmy.com and schoolofmary.com. And by... Tim Shevlin's Personal Fitness Training for Catholics, providing spiritual and physical wellness through personalized nutrition, workout and prayer programs, and daily accountability check-ins. Learn more by visiting fitcatholics.com. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Dom. Once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest. If you've enjoyed Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World, you'll also enjoy another StarQuest Network show, The Secrets of Star Trek. Find it wherever you can find podcasts or at sqpn.com slash trek.